When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can unlock ad-free versions of the podcast for $3 a month and get bonus episodes on current TV, movies we don't cover on the podcast, and other topics for $5 a month. We currently have a bonus episode on the sci-fi non-hit The Creator and another about Tasha's surprisingly great experience at Fantastic Fest. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That's patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Tasha Robinson. And Keith Phipps. Genevieve Kosky has been out for weeks delivering mail on horseback through Apache territory, but we're sure she's doing just fine. That's the gig economy for you, right? It's not enough to be the senior TV editor at Vulture. You also have to deliver mail on horseback through hostile terrain. Anyway, what she's missing out on today is the reopening... The grand reopening of Sweet Emulsion Studios. Ever since the the pandemic started, we we have done this uh, podcast remotely. You know, Genevieve moved to Michigan, and then but now sitting right across from me is Tasha Robinson. This is an exciting time. He stopped letting me because uh, you know I can. I, we're we're sitting in a room full of like bean bags and stuffed animals and things. There's so many things I can throw at him when I disagree <laughs> with him about stuff. And, and, uh, normally, are endless. normally that doesn't happen. And despite living, I think, 20 minutes away, Scott, I, I opted not to come over. You did not. You did yeah. not. Uh, we would have, you're, you being here would have actually spared us a lot of technical difficulties that we just uh, yeah. uh, bluffed our way through. So we'll, we'll see how this turns out. But it's exciting to have we were, the whole idea of this podcast when it started is like, we really should make sure we spend plenty of time together. And then we just went to doing all this remotely. But anyway, Tasha, what are we talking about this week? Uh, we're talking about the 1950 Western Broken Arrow, one of the first post-war Westerns to view Native Americans through a sympathetic lens. James Stewart plays a frontiersman who comes to the aid of a wounded 14-year-old Apache boy in Arizona and winds up trying to broker a peace agreement between the white prospectors of Tucson and Cochise, the leader of the Apaches. He also falls in love with a young Apache girl named Sosire. The film's earnest, if flawed, attempt to upend genre conventions, as well as the cross-cultural love story at its center, made it an ideal pairing with the new Martin Scorsese epic, Killers of the Flower Moon. Drawn from David Grant's nonfiction book, 
Scorsese's film visits Oklahoma in the early 1920s, when the Osage tribe, enriched by the discovery of oil on its territory, is beset by a series of murders. Both films attempt a more progressive understanding of indigenous populations than previous Westerns, but both are also naturally limited by the perspective of white filmmakers. So this week, we'll follow Jimmy Stewart as he tries to broker a peace between the cowboys and Indians of past Westerns in Broken Arrow. Then we'll revisit a different kind of tension in Osage territory with Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. We'll be back after the break. Does it hurt you? Sometimes. It will never hurt again. started into the canyons that were the beginning of Cochise's country. I never felt so lonely and so dog-scared in my life. For three days, I climbed higher into the mountains in which the Apache stronghold was hidden. The screenwriter Albert Maltz was one of the original Hollywood Ten, who, along with writers like Dalton Trumbo and Alabesi, openly challenged the legitimacy of the House Un-American Activities Committee when he was brought before it on October 28, 1947. Maltz was particularly furious at questions from a Mississippi Democrat named John E. Rankin for speaking of the Ku Klux Klan as, quote-unquote, an American institution. Maltz said that he would not be dictated to or intimidated by men to whom the Ku Klux Klan, as a matter of committee record, is an acceptable institution. By the time Maltz's screenplay for Broken Arrow was turned into a movie in 1950, he was already on the blacklist, and another MPAA writer, Michael Blankfort, took the credit as a front. In fact, Maltz's name was also taken off the robe three years after that, and he wouldn't be employed under his real name again until the 1970 Clint Eastwood western Two Meals for Sister Sarah. Maltz's disgust at having to answer to a supporter of the KKK squares with the politics of Broken Arrow which seeks to combat the bigotry and white supremacy that have been blithely accepted as part of the Western genre. The film argues that maybe the Apache have reason to fire on white settlers that crossed into their territory, and they also have reason not to trust that peace can be achieved with a people who views them as savages. A more sympathetic understanding of Native Americans would become more commonplace decades later, but in 1950, Broken Arrow was treading on politically tenuous ground, especially for a genre that was not exactly understood as liberal-minded. But Maltz and the film's director, Delmer Daves, helped the audience find their way through this story by following Jimmy Stewart, that paragon of cinematic decency, through the proverbial gauntlet. Stewart stars as frontiersman Tom Jeffords, who comes across a 14-year-old Apache boy with buckshot wounds in his back. Rather than leave the child to die, Jeffords risks his life to nurse him back to health. The Apaches are perplexed by Jeffords' mercy and let him live but not before he witnesses a horrifying scene where they kill and torture a group of prospectors who enter the same territory. Jeffords is allowed to leave, but with the warning that he's not allowed on Apache land again. Yet Jeffords proves to be a bit bullheaded in resisting both the Apache's warnings and the exaggerations about the ambush told by white men back in Tucson. So he decides to try something radical by learning the Apache language and convincing the tribe's leader, Cochise, to allow mail carriers to pass through Apache territory without drawing fire. It takes a lot of convincing on both sides, but the gambit ends up working, opening up the possibility of an even broader peace. At the same time, Jefford falls in love with Sonsire, 
an Apache girl of marrying age and risks a controversial union. One of the fascinating aspects of Broken Arrow is that it's not fully defiant. This is an exciting Technicolor Western with lots of adventure and fight sequences, and most of the Apache characters are white actors and red face, with Jeff Chandler as Cochise and Deborah Paget as Sonshi Ray. Paget was only 16 at the time, and Stewart was 42, incidentally. One of the few non-white performers in the film was a Canadian Mohawk named Jay Silverheels, who was cast as Geronimo, who happens to be one of the Apaches who balks at Cochise trying to arrange a peace arrangement with Jeffords. In a way, the casting of Silverheels, an actual indigenous person, as a warrior who rejects peace with the white settlers, is as troubling as the red face used for the actors played by Cochise and Sun Ray, the heroes of this story. There's a both sidesism at play in Broken Arrow, where Apache defectors like Geronimo are put on equal footing with the racist white gunslingers in Tucson. In 1950, there appears to have been more of a need to signal to the audience that there's no wrong party here, except those scoundrels who disrupt the peace. Still, like good old Tom Jeffords, Broken Arrow was doing the difficult work of trying to reshape an impression of Native Americans that have been calcified by the Western genre for years. When the movies have told you that the Cowboys are the good guys and the Indians are the bad guys, it's going to take more than one movie to change your mind. We'll talk about it after the break. My mother is crying, he said. Funny, it never struck me that an Apache woman would cry over her son like any other woman. Apaches are wild animals, we all said. Do you pray to killer of enemies? Mm. Not even to life giver? The ones up there. Oh, now we have another name. Apaches pray for all white men to die. But now I pray to keep you safe. At sunset last night, I threw pollen to the four winds for you. Well, thanks, boy. This is very big, against headache and sickness. Now it is yours. So Broken Arrow is fascinating as a historical moment in the movies, as I talk about it in the keynote and we'll talk about here. I'm curious to see how it holds up to you as an actual movie. Uh, were you compelled by it? I mean, I found it a little stiff. It's certainly historically fascinating for what it's doing, what it's conveying, how it's doing it by comparison with a lot of the classic Westerns I've seen. You know, if you've seen something like The Searchers and you compare it to this, this certainly comes across as a much more progressive, accessible version of history. And it's it's certainly one that I personally am uh, more aligned with. But at the same time, as both storytelling and as a Jimmy Stewart feature, I, I found it a little stiff, a little preachy, maybe a little self-righteous, just in a... Uh, it, it's very aware of the history that it's trying to countermand. And it kind of comes across as a, uh, a bit of a preachy lesson. I'm also super not down with a 42-year-old Jimmy Stewart romancing a 17-year-old girl in a, a love at first sight kind of situation. I really like his performance, and I think there are some incredibly well-done set pieces in this. There are some really good both like action and personal scenes. And I mean, the cinematography, there's there's a shot where the, uh, the young lovers, one of whom is 42 years old and the other <laughs> one is 17 years old, lie down together by the side of a a lake below the mountains that's just you know gape worthy so there's there's a lot to respect and like in this movie compelling is not the first word that i would choose for it 
What do you think of it, Keith? I would probably declare it the 45th best Western ever made, <laughs> sandwiched between the Great Train Robbery and One-Eyed Jacks, uh, were I writing a list of that kind for Vulture, as I, as I did. Uh, but uh, no, I, I, I like this movie. I, I, I hear what you're saying, Tasha, but I mean, it does have a message to get across. I think it sandwiches in, into a, a, a really compelling story. You know, you, there's a lot, obviously, you have to take into consideration in terms of the cultural climate in which it was made. So, like, you know, in, in, it's extremely progressive in the context of its times. But a lot of it, for me, is Stuart's performance. And this is taking out Destry Rides Again, which is more of a, uh, a comedy. Uh, it's his first Western. And I really love James Stewart in, in, in Western. He's one of my favorite actors anyway. But, uh, you know, it really is the best you know showcase for you know the, who he was after the war, which was a different person by, by all reports. Like very, he did someone who does not talk about his wartime experiences, but you can kind of see in his performances after that. I'm mean, starting with "It's a Wonderful Life," but here it's like someone who's who's just weary of violence and, and conflict, and and uh, you still get like sort of that everyman quality to him. But there's there's an edge to it, and and uh, that's you know I think that's that's a really great. We can see that a lot in this. I think it's a great performance. So, no, I, I I like this movie, and sometimes in you know. When you do a list like that, you kind of have to take a historical importance into account, and that's certainly historical importance. Maybe knocks this up the ranks a little bit. Although I do, I do think it's quite good as a film too. Yeah, I think I'm I'm a little bit more. I can see where Tasha is sort of coming from. It is stilted and at times. I mean, the relationship between Jeffords and Son Shire is not <laughs> not the be- not the greatest thing about the movie. <laughs> But it is it's quite beautiful to look at as a technicolor. The sequences, I, I think it really is trying to do a difficult thing, which is kind of a, bringing this sort of more progressive understanding, you know, of the Apache, but also sort of delivering the goods as a Western. I think it's the goods delivering is there. It's it's <laughs> the 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 it, it's very exciting in in that respect. I think I think it kind of if you if you're the type of person in 1950 who's going out to see you know a shoot 'em up, I think you would get feel like you got your money's worth on this and um because because it's very well filmed it's not it's not stilted in that respect and i just found it i I did find though just the way it negotiated this the politics to be fascinating and intention building in itself of just like how do you how do you go about it what are the mechanics of the film and i think i think the way you see everything unfold through Jimmy Stewart and the decisions that he makes and the argue, you know, I feel like the film is able to align itself so well with Jeffords and so well with Jimmy Stewart's performance that it sells you on the argument that it's trying to make. And uh, for that, I, I thought there was a lot to appreciate. I was really quite riveted by the uh, the 90 minutes or so that, uh, that it took to watch this movie. I was my interest did not flag, I will say. So, I, I, you know, is it is it one of the greatest films ever made? one of the greatest Westerns that I'll leave that to Keith to uh, decide, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I thought it was, uh, I was impressed and kind of excited that we ended up uh, choosing this one. Cause we certainly had some other things that we were batting around for this pairing. This is a film that is engineered from the beginning, really to make audiences rethink their assumptions about the Western genre, at least ideas that have been sort of ingrained into them by, by watching Westerns. So how does it go about doing that? And and uh, I guess that is kind of where the significance of Jimmy Stewart cast in the lead role really matters. I feel like one of the big ones, I mean, there's a lot going on here, but one of the things that struck me most was the fact that the natives are given 
more visible civilization than we normally get in uh, Cowboys and Indians Western. The time that we spend on like native ritual, basically the the Apache ritual of marriage, the Apache Apache ritual of the dance they do before the coming of age ceremony of this uh, 17 year old girl who's about to get handed to 42 year old Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> like all of these. No, I'm just going to keep bringing it up, Scott, because boy, it feels weird. There was a real sense I, with that first dance in particular for me of potential cultural preservation going on here. And we'll get to Killers of the Flower Moon, but there's a dance sequence in that that similarly feels like, you know, let's get this on film for future generations. And, you know, you you can talk all day about uh, like, oh, this makes uh, natives seem more, um, you know, noble than than other movies or more generous or more divided in an interesting way, you know, politically divided as opposed to uh, samey and, and uniform and heterogeneous. But for me, one of the big differences was just like, let's actually spend time with with the politics and the, the home lives and the social lives and the traditions of the natives in a way that doesn't seem exotifying mm. or like outsider-ish. It, it's, we have uh, Jeffords as very much an outsider who's experiencing these things all for the first time. But I just don't think that our eyes are presented as his eyes. Like we're we're not presented these things as look at the spectacle like of these exotic people doing their exotic things. It's like, oh yeah, now it's now it's time to do the dance. We're not going to explain this to you in great detail. This is just what our lives are like. This is just how we present things. And like all the little bits of culture and tradition that we get, I, I found very interesting. Which doesn't well, necessarily it, mean it's accurate, though. <laughs> oh, sure. Right? For sure. Yeah, I certainly don't think that they had, like, a big council of actual Apaches, like, brought in as cultural consultants the way modern movies very often do. But even the sense that, you know, the that these aren't, like, noble primitives who have no civilization of their own, just things that they stole from the white man and murder, uh, like, seems like certainly more than we get in the searchers i think that's a good point about about the fact that it establishes that this is their home <laughs> they are not just a wild people who are ambushing settlers this is like it, you know we, we have to think about the the fact that they ha that they're rooted here that they live here that they have homes that they have rituals those rituals are you know benign uh, as well and something kind of worth exploring and respecting. And then I think, I think you know, when you go back to the beginning of the film, it's just, you know, you're presented, you're, uh, Jeffords is presented with this situation, which anybody could identify with, which is this, this young boy, this 14-year-old, I think, uh, Apache boy, he's been wounded with buckshot. He's not really going to be any kind of threat to Jeffords. And so the choice becomes... A little bit you know the good thing to do the decent thing to do is to help him but one of the things i found really interesting about the movie and the, the way it kind of challenges us in a way that i wouldn't have expected was was what happens next you know the fact that not only jeffords is spared but he also has to bear witness to this pretty startling scene where prospectors kind of come through and and uh he watches watches them get killed and, and and tortured, and then he's sent away. And and um, I mean, it's it's you know, I think we then he can kind of understand the difference. He can kind of like think about why he was let go and why they weren't, and that alters his kind of approach to things. But I I, I did 
appreciate the fact that the film was going to had the courage to show this attack happen and in the, in the, this this torture happen while also kind of aligning our you know making certain that we're aligned with and understanding the motives of the apache there's also that very telling moment at the beginning when he's talking to the the boy that he saved and the boy says you know he's he's out on his manhood ritual but his mother is going to cry out of fear that he's died out in the woods on his own and Jeffords has to sit with that and is like I it never occurred to me that an Indian mother would cry for her her Indian boy and it that's one of the things I'm talking about that feels very stilted it's preachy it's aimed directly at the audience it's it's kind of a hey remember those like 400 exciting shoot 'em ups that uh, you've seen in the theater so far. That's like why you come to cowboy and Indian movies. Everybody that you just saw like gunned down in a heroic, uh, like blaze of cowboy glory had a mother at home that was sad. And it, it feels like a little much, but it's also, it's just an important moment of, you know, a white dude waking up to basic empathy, to, to a basic understanding that these people who have been vilified, that he's been taught to see in a certain way, are also human. One of the things I really like about this film is, though, that cuts both ways. You tapped into something earlier about how they're they're presented as you know they're they're not being presented as uh, you know just just thieves who want stuff off the white man or whatever, but we are seeing a raider warrior culture, and the fact that the when the big split happens, it's because some of the the chiefs are like. How are we supposed to continue on if we can't go steal like guns and horses from the Mexicans? Like this is part of our like longstanding tribal culture where we're a raiding culture and we can't have the white man telling us we can't go do that anymore. We need stuff. We also get to see them just super like gleeful at like running off with entire wagons of things. Like it's certainly clear that, you know, these are not some kind of like inherently peaceable people in a way that doesn't jibe with what we know about basic human nature. There's greed on both sides. There's flaws on both sides. I think you're exactly right about everything you said in the keynote about the problematic both sidesism of the movie. But at the same time, I, I do like that there's more of a nuance there in terms of what the natives want and in terms of what the, yeah. the natives culture demands. Yeah. I mean, to me, for all the the stereotypes and and you know the whole Apache wedding blessing has taken on another life of its own as a sort of a, a way to that's uh, kind of spread some some stereotypes uh, itself and the red face, which I'm sure we'll get into. It's like the the main thing for this to me this movie is it, it just invests them all the characters on both sides uh, with full humanity. I mean these are these are all you know f- fully human, flawed, interesting characters, and that's you know it's it's you, you don't want to say this was like the movie that did that because there there were other this was one of of several films to kind of move in that direction but it's it's a big step yeah and i mean and sometimes those big steps are you know can be a little bit awkward i mean you think about you think about like those first guess who's coming to dinner comes to mind uh, right or, or those first movies to kind of get kind of tiptoe into the into the into the AIDS uh, epidemic and and how, how all that how that got treated everything was a little bit stilted again is the word or quaint or too I would say cautious 
I, I feel like all of these movies are, are making like brave narrative choices in kind of cautious ways. Right. And like when I think about Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, it's it's like the Sidney Poitier's character in that movie has to be the perfect man. He has to be set up as just completely unassailable in, in every way. And that makes him a little inhuman and that makes the movie a little stilted. But at the same time, the complexity of what's being navigated there like makes that kind of cautious necessary and i see a similar kind of caution here that's where like a little bit of the preachiness comes in but when you're trying to like push an idea that's sort of a thing that happens uh so this will be this will be a bit long-winded but i wanted to talk about sort of how we processed or how you all process the use of red face in the movie because of course it's not it's not something you would accept today but of course we're not far from johnny depp playing tonto and the lone ranger hmm. the most canceled film of all time and and uh and and, but but i did did you take it significant as significant that that an indigenous actor was cast to play geronimo here but that white actors played more sympathetic characters uh, like like cochise and and son si ray yeah that's not a that's not a great look i guess (laughs) it's it's good to have jay silverhills in it but but to have him as not uh, the bad guy Exactly, but certainly the the most untamable of all the uh, uh, native characters is a is, mm-hmm. is a little a little questionable. I feel like this is something where I would need a lot more extra textuals to comment on it. I mean, it's it's possible that uh, the director just didn't feel he could get a movie made with a, a lead native actor at the time. It's possible that there weren't a whole lot of native actors to go around in Hollywood because there wasn't a lot of call for them, given that natives in uh, movies tended to be people people of a wide variety of ethnicities in red face. Uh, I believe the the man playing Cochise here is is uh, a, a, a like a Jewish man from Brooklyn, if I Jeff remember Chandler, that correctly. Yeah, he's not even for best supporting actor for this. He actually played Cochise in two other movies after this, uh, including one I've always wanted to see, uh, Douglas Sirk Western, starring Rock Hudson as the, the not Native American actor Rock Hudson as Taza, son of Cochise. It's the name of the film, and and Jeff Chandler reprises his role as Cochise uh, in that as well. Goodness. Yeah, I I mean the, there were just there were, there were a lot of uh, extra textuals that would have been going on at the time that may have uh, heavily uh, informed this. I knew an actor in college who went on to become a, a movie and TV actor who was a, a black man who just absolutely refused to play characters who were slaves or who he considered to be like Uncle Tomish characters. Mm. Like, I mean, it's entirely possible that Jay Silverhills didn't want to play a character that was like giving into the inevitably going to be betrayed treaty of the white man. Like, mm. I there are there are a lot of possibilities here that like i basically just don't want to judge them until we know more about like the the historical energy going on here okay i mean that that, that that's, it makes sense so i i think just as it plays though it seems pointed just as it just as it works as a movie to because it is somewhat you know the the, the actors who are using red face are pretty conspicuously doing so <laughs> um here but i mean how did that work for you i mean i mean obviously you kind of just sort of take it as hey that's this is 1950 this is what this is what was done but what what did how did that affect the way the work movie worked on you i guess and those performances worked on you because as keith mentioned jeff chandler was nominated for best supporting actor for this 
I honestly wonder if they wouldn't have run into legal issues with the scenes with Sincere if she'd been played by a native actress at that point, you know, because mm. of the, the interracial relationship laws at the time. I, I think it probably would have been scandalous. It was what it wouldn't have played in some parts of the, the states, I'm sure. But even more than that, it was uh, like a decade plus later that uh, William Shatner and Nichelle Nichols like kissed on TV. And it, that was a huge scandal. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, you know, think about the time it was possible that they like for legal reasons had to have a, a white actress in that role in red face. I don't know. I mean, I don't love it, but I feel like uh, everybody here is doing their best and we, we have to take the the history into account. And it's still better than Johnny Depp playing Tonto. Well, I mean, I think if you put a huge asterisk next to it, I think Jeff Chandler's is really good in this movie. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a good performance. It's perhaps a performance that should not exist, but it's a good performance. I also like the way he's written. Like, there's just such a risk with this kind of movie of the noble stat, the noble savage stereotype. You know, the the guy who's just better than uh, than anybody else. And I like how politically savvy he is. The whole business with the rocks, where he's like, uh, you know, you can be as happy as you want that this this piece has been brokered. I'll be happy when we go three months and it hasn't been broken because I know how the white man do uh, with these with these peace treaties. Like he he truly does want peace and want the best future for his people, but he's no dummy. And like his combination of like measured, qualified, like willingness to try at peace and not being a sucker, I think is both something that I haven't really seen in a Western and again, just makes him, it makes him feel like a much better leader. You know, we're, we're not just told like, oh, this, this guy is a great leader. We get to see him like navigating a battle, which he has planned meticulously and, and carefully. We find out that he's got spies in various places or at least some way of getting uh, crucial information so he can plan his battles better. Like he's shown to be a good leader as well as a wise one, as well as a very savvy one who is not going to get played for a sucker. I, I like that about him. It's a really good character. I, I think it's a good performance. And I, but the, I think you're right in that there's so much for him to think about. And as the, the leader of this tribe and, and it's so much for him to suspect, to be suspicious of and be hopeful for as well, too. I mean, that's what he's he's acting on. Uh, you know, he's he recognizes in. Jeffords, someone who is decent and, and honorable, even as he, you know, doesn't have a huge all that and, and, and as much faith that uh, other other white people will, will behave accordingly. You know, I think that's a, it's a, one of those things where an earnest movie like Broken Arrow could have simplified that character, made him just kind of a flat noble hero but i think you give you, you know there's just a lot more here to dig into a lot of a lot of thought toward tensions within uh, the, the apache over the over the notion of a peace treaty over the notion of of their lives potentially being altered by interacting with with with, an, with a, another culture in a significant way uh, as, you know having a, a wedding for one so he's got to get, navigate that and as well as his own concerns that, that this could backfire and uh, result in a lot more bloodshed and tension and on his side and on the other side. And so that, in that sense, the film feels richer than it might have been, I guess. 
I'll also say this about Jay Silverheels casting. You might take him as sort of the villain of the piece who's also the, the most prominent native actor in the piece, but he only really comes across as villainous if you assume that all parties here are uh, playing on the level and that, you know, historically speaking, this treaty, this truce did not last long. It's not like he's wrong. And when he stands up and says, you know, basically, I, I don't believe that they're going to honor this. I don't believe it's going to be carried for, for for the future. And the treaty itself is too far reaching and is like controlling us culturally and, and trying to like back us off from our rightful way of life, which is not necessarily hunting the white man. But, you know, we've been going on these raids into Mexico for for generations. Like what right does this treaty have to control us this way? I think that his concerns are reasonable. I think that his choice is reasonable. And, you know, the fact that white folks are getting killed in the same movie where we're watching like white folks murder 17 year old girls is uh, maybe not the most villainous thing. So, you know, he he's got his <laughs> Geronimo was right, is what I'm saying. Hashtag <laughs> Geronimo was right. One thing I respect about this movie is it's not a film about how the Apache need to change and adopt uh, the white man's ways. I think it, for all the, you know, sort of squickiness, the Jeffords, uh, uh relationship for, for several reasons. Uh, one thing that really struck me is, is the part where, where she mentions, she professes not to know who Eve of Adam and Eve was. And he just kind of chuckles and like, it's not like, oh, we'll have to teach you or this is something that, 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 that uh, you, you will, you will soon or something like that. It's just, there's really no sense of that, that he's, so he's going, needs to go in and, and, and fix the, uh, fix the Apache or, or assimilate to use the, you know, the word I'm kind of dancing around here. Yeah, the film's relationship with Christianity in general is, uh, no pun intended, kind of interesting in that it's it's presented as a little bit of a touchstone to explain why the one general behaves the way he does. That line where Jeffords says, you know, read your Bible for me because I like the way you read it is pretty ironic. You know, he's he is basically saying, you're the only person I've ever met that reads like God loves all of his children to mean like actually all of his children and not just your people. There's uh, there's a little bit of a, you know, a go forth and do better for the audience in that uh, as there is in, in various aspects of this movie. But yeah, I don't think that it's presented as a particularly like Christian centric, like, of course, we've got to go like find the savage and bring them civilization. When somebody actually says like, we're improving the West, we're bringing, you know, guns and shirts out here. Uh, it's presented as much more of a laugh line, I think, than just a, an assumption that like, of course, bringing civilization to the West is a good thing. The general you're referring to, the, the Christian general, is General Oliver Howard. I did a little research. He actually was, that was his nickname. If you think of Howard, it sounds familiar. It's because he is the founder of Howard University and, and worked with somewhat mixed results in the Reconstruction. And I think kind of a matter of him kind of being cut off at the knees in terms of what he wanted to accomplish. But unfortunately, his, I read an article on the Smithsonian's website about this, his record with Native Americans is not nearly as admirable as his attempts to, to actually implement 
implement reconstruction after the civil war but uh i like that this film is saying this is you know presents this is someone who's actually living christian principles and not just professing christian principles and it's it could come off as sanctimonious but it really doesn't i think it's it's actually the way he uses his faith uh is actually quite well deployed in this movie the scene where he rescues Jeffords from a lynching also is maybe my favorite sequence in the film. The gradual ramp up of a bunch of drunken racist yahoos, you know, who have only had like one point of view presented to them and that that's, you know, the pinnacle of civilization, <laughs> despite the fact that they're a bunch of uh, drunken reprobates. They gradually talk themselves up into a frenzy and then attempt a lynching. And the physicality of that sequence where they muscle Jimmy Stewart out into the street, it really emphasizes like how tall and, and lanky and thin he is as they just fight him down the street and start trying to shove his head into a noose. If you watch his face in that sequence, he's always aware of where the noose is. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't break, he doesn't, he doesn't beg, he doesn't yell for mercy or, or in rage, but he watches that noose throughout that sequence in a way that just struck me as, as very real, you know, in a, a way that I've seen in a, a handful of films here and there. Of all things, the Disney movie Tangled comes to mind of an awareness of, you know, this is the thing that means death. It's so common in Westerns for people to whip out guns and point them at each other or fire them at each other. And they're just sort of like icons that nobody really pays attention to. But as soon as somebody starts tying that noose, his eyes are on it. And the entire time they're trying to shove him into it, he's like watching it with like increased dread. And then uh, the general steps up and just like cuts through all of that mob mania like it's butter and is just a much more like immediately respectable and intimidating figure as a result, which he hasn't really been up until that moment. Yeah, that is that is a really good sequence. Though, though, unfortunately, I'm now imagining someone doing an impression of of Jimmy Stewart if he were to, if we were to be protesting. <laughs> being, uh, <laughs> oh no, no. no. <laughs> I can't, I'm not going to do it. Um, so, uh, uh, so if jo, maybe, if, maybe if we had Joe Quazala back on the show, he would he, he would have he would have had some sort of a Jimmy Stewart impersonation all lined up. Though I don't know if that's his his uh, shtick. Anyway, I want to broach before we you know pivot out of here. I, I do want to broach the thing that Tasha doesn't particularly like this film, this relationship between 42-year-old Jimmy Stewart and the 17-year-old playing Son Chi Ray. Let's set aside the no, age. Scott, yeah. sorry, I got to correct you there. 16-year-old. 16-year-old uh, actor. Uh, I think the character, character was 17. And six, yeah. Actor, actor, six, okay. If we can move past the age difference thing, which is which I'm, I, none of us are, I'm sure, that thrilled about. The ending of the film is kind of powerful, and I think the idea of the marriage is so as well. Am I off on that, or were you completely out, Tasha? I was completely out because the, I mean, it's just, it's so common for the people in movies to play characters much younger than they are. But it, here, it just, it really plays that this is a, a girl barely out of childhood. And he is a an experienced veteran, like a, a man who's already lived several lives. It doesn't feel to me like one of those relationships where you can pretend they're at all in a similar phase of life. Like she's practically a schoolgirl, like in attitude, in in knowledge, in behavior. 
And he's kind of an old man. And, you know, it's as acceptable as this might have been at the time in the understanding that men could marry whenever, as long as they could support a a wife. And women should probably be married somewhere between like 15 and 18 before they get like old and and tired. It just, mm, I, I don't like it conceptually. I don't like it on the screen. But I also just didn't buy their romance particularly. Like, certainly the idea of the the exotic outsider coming in and, like, touching this woman's heart, I can understand. The, the idea of this young, beautiful, innocent flower t- uh, touching this man's heart, I can understand. But, like, watching the two of them on the screen, I just don't, I don't feel any chemistry between them. I, I feel like an adult man kissing a child and uh, trying to pretend it's love. I, I can't I can't disagree with you. It's, oh, a, it's, man, a, it's a pretty awkward on. it's a pretty awkward element of of, of this film. Um, <laughs> conceptually, though, I do like the marriage idea. That, that 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 feels kind of necessary to what this film is doing. Just to have her martyred felt a little too familiar. Uh, what happens to you know noble minority characters in so many films? But uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, I don't. It doesn't kill the film by any stretch, but it is is not an un uncomfortable <laughs> pairing. <laughs> Well, we, we will get uh, to explore the mysteries of cross-cultural love in the Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon. So we'll, we'll leave that for now. Now we'll uh, take a break and come back with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback. But before we get to it, we want to shout out Film Spotting, the Next Picture Show's Mothership podcast, hosted by Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson. As we record this, Adam and Josh have welcomed our friend Matt Singer to talk about his great new Siskel and Ebert book, Opposable Thumbs, and the top five movies Siskel and Ebert got wrong. I can certainly think of some films they got wrong. Uh, uh, Blue Velvet, right? Uh, oh my God, Blue Velvet. That was Ebert who was anti-Blue Velvet, was it? What's another one? I'm deeply stuck on Blue Velvet. I mean, yeah. uh, obviously the, the movie uh, North is very good. I don't know what Roger was talking about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, Nine and a half weeks. I, I really remember standing out for me in terms of Ebert, uh, love that one. Ebert Ebert's write-up. But but he he wanted it to go further. He, he thought it was uh, a very erotic and sexy movie that he just thought should go further. Much like I remember seeing that movie for the first time. And Blue Velvet for the first time in very close proximity to each other when I was in my college, like watch all of the things that that people say are good mode. And then, you know, we would uh, watch a movie and then read what Ebert had to say about it. And I just remember watching those almost back to back and reading his reviews in both cases and kind of feeling like I, I knew way too much about his, you know, what went on in his erotic imagination. <laughs> He would open up that window now and again. Uh, <laughs> he could be worried about it too. Pastimes, it was kind of like who? Well, this this poor Jennifer Jason Lee is being taken advantage of by by this film. It's like no, yeah. I, I think you know history has proven out that Jason Jennifer Jason Lee was willing to go places. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Also, it's I mean, God, especially now in retrospect, a movie like that, you're just like, man, that movie was willing to go places. That that was yeah. exciting. That wasn't like something to be horrified by well being so negative i i still you were someone i was reviews i still go back and read yes. regularly i love watching those old segments uh so oh, yeah for I, sure can't wait to read the uh matt's book it's quite good and we, we had an uh did an interview with him a long interview for the reveal as well so if you want to 
check out uh, that interview. He gets he gets into a lot of detail about his process of writing it and his love of that show and my obsession with the fact that they had a skunk, a live skunk, on for a handful of shows as for Stinker of the Week, which just blew my mind. So Opposable Thumbs, great name for a book as well. We also, you know, we've been remiss in not mentioning that Josh Larson has a book out called Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror Movies. It seems uh, he's very he's very smart about these uh, topics. And, and this is, yeah, uh, is. It, it, it'll still be spooky season when this comes out. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, I haven't read it yet. It's on my to, to, to read list, uh, but, but it's pretty near the top. So I will get to that soon. I, I have every confidence that it is a very good book that, I, I, that we can recommend heartily. For sure. Yeah, I am so behind in my reading at this point with, uh, with Mo Ryan's book and uh, Josh's book and Matt's book and all of these other books that are piling up. But I'm very excited. Josh just so often surprises me uh, with some of his insights, some of his takes. He may be the current critic I learn most from in terms of seeing particularly symbolic elements in a movie that I didn't see. So I'm very excited to read that book. He's a smart one, that Josh. So as for feedback, we recently did a sci-fi pairing of Under the Skin and the Hulu film No One Will Save You. Uh, we disagreed sharply in our interpretation of the end of No One Will Save You, but listener Sarah has a compelling theory. Keith, uh, do you want to share this one? Yes. Like whenever we do, whenever we have one of these, like I forget who wrote in about Asteroid City, like basically like, oh yeah, we totally missed something that, that kind of unlocks something about what that movie is doing. Uh, so uh, perhaps this will be one of those. Sarah writes, I had a different take on Brand and No One Will Save You. I didn't see someone consumed by grief, even if she has every right to be. She waves at the neighbors who disdain her and lovingly builds a model of the town that doesn't want her in it. She writes letters to her best friend as if she is still alive, despite their last moments ending in a fight and tragedy death. She writes that she will never forgive herself, but when confronted with her younger self, reaches out with compassion. I don't really know why the aliens chose to let her live as herself, if that is what happened. Maybe they saw her as as I did, as someone with extremely strong survival instincts and someone who wants to build a kind and beautiful world. It was a tragic ending, but I also felt elated that it wasn't the usual trauma plot. As for connections to Under the Skin, it's hard out there for a single lady. (laughs) Tasha, you like this letter, I think. Oh, yeah, I really like this letter a lot. I think that Sarah may be like underrating the amount of grief that she's living under. I, I think that particularly the letters are not necessarily a sign of hope. Like if you if you look at the text she's writing, it's she's saying that she's never going to forgive herself and that she she thinks about it every day. And I feel like she's writing these letters because no one will listen to her. You know, the fact that she's mute throughout almost the entire film indicates to me that she's she has been trying to say things uh, probably to her her friend's parents probably to everybody else in the community probably to herself and nobody's listened the only people that listen to her are the aliens and then the aliens give her something she wants so i i do think that the grief is a very important element on all this and i i think that it explains why the movie is made the way it is. But I still really like this insight, particularly the way she continues to respond to people, the way she makes this version of the town that is under her control and is something that she can have access to and when she can't have access to the real thing. I very much like the thoughtfulness that that went into this letter, even if I disagree with small aspects of it. Yeah, it's pretty good, and it makes you think. Yeah, this is—it's sort of the uh, no one will save you. Has kind of the AI ending, right? Of just like aliens kind of seeing this situation, having having under understanding of this uh, being that that is foreign, but they can kind of have some sort of empathy for. 
and is producing this highly artificial scenario in which she can have some kind of happiness, I guess. Oh, so if it's like AI, so it has a, it's a cop-out, happy ending, that Spielberg just lays on the schmaltz. <laughs> uh, that's right. And then also, this is, the, this is the last day of her life. Like, we see her happily dancing with the, uh, the villagers, and then the aliens immediately kill her. Lest I misread, go listen to our AI episode. I, I don't actually feel that. Hats off to uh, Brian Duffield for mimicking the beloved ending of, of AI artificial intelligence. Beloved here. I love it. But anyway. I, me too. I know. I know. I get it. So going back to our Pablo Lorraine pair of No and El Conde, listener Jamshid connects the dots on Lorraine's work. Tasha, could you read those thoughts? Yeah, of course. Uh, Jamshid writes, your question about what No has in common with Lorraine's other films, especially Jackie, got me thinking. I think one way in which the two films are similar is that they're both concerned with managing the media treatment of an event with immense political significance. In the case of No, the referendum, and in the case of Jackie, JFK's memorial service, and more generally, the aftermath of his assassination. Further, both films focus on one individual's strong belief about how to manage the media moment, a belief that puts them at odds with everyone around them. A similar concern with media representation and public perception is also a through line in Lorraine's Neruda, as I remember, anyway. It's been a while since I've seen that. And the obvious backdrop to Spencer, with the tabloid treatment of Diana and of Charles hanging like a shadow over the film. Anyway, I've long thought that questions of media representation and the public perception of famous figures slash historical moments are an abiding concern in Lorraine's work, and it's a big part of why I find these films fascinating. Very curious to hear your thoughts. Meanwhile, I need to watch El Conde. Yeah, watch El Conde kind of blow up, <laughs> blow up the media theory, right? I mean, there's not a whole lot of that media perception stuff in El Conde, is there? Uh, not exactly. I mean, as like, historical per- perception, though. I mean, there's 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 so much of this uh, horrible vampire Pinochet seeing his reputation and being disappointed that it hasn't been revived. And so in, in the way reputations are revived is through the media, through public perception. And so I guess that that does, it kind of figures in an, a little bit more of a offhand way, whereas films like No and Jackie and, and Spencer are dealing with it a little bit more directly, I would say. That said, I think this is a really great insight uh, yeah. that, that ties a lot of these things together. I think Pinochet is a bit of an obsession for Lorraine for very obvious reasons that can extend outside the the media metaphor. Uh, the man can be fascinated with more than one thing. And just like uh, tracing the connection, I think, particularly through this like more realism focused kind of historical picture versus the the glossier and more experimental spins that he takes on in, in Jackie and Spencer. I have not seen Neruda, so I, I couldn't speak to that. But like tying all of these four films together, I think in a very insightful way is a, a good thing. I like this letter as well. I yeah, like it when no, people keep, write to so us. Please keep sending good letters to us. Please. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response, listener, on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcatcher of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. 
You can find us at nextpictureshow.net, on Twitter at nextpicturepod, and at Blue Sky at The Next Picture Show if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, if any of us ever send up smoke signals, please call the fire department. <laughs>